once I was in a bar sitting and having a coffee and someone uh, approached me and said, you are Gloria Mies? I said, yes. I want to thank you because thanks to your book, uh, I was able to to stand differently in, in my father's death. And those type of things happened that I'm, I'm really surprised. Is it really, it really is, it's moving to know that perhaps we can give a hand to someone that is afraid to stand by someone is dying. And sometimes I receive mails from people I don't know thanking me. And I don't think it's nothing special. I needed, I thought, well, it's good to have something in Argentina for our people and to, to learn once again about how to stand by someone is dying. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today we have a special guest zooming in right from Argentina, Gloria Miggins. Gloria is an author of a fantastic book, and uh, she's also one of the leading experts in spiritual care at the end of life in Argentina. Gloria, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, both of you. Yeah, we are very excited to have you. Can you give us a little background of where you grew up? Okay, I come from an Argentinian family, even though my ancestors were Irish, French, and Spanish. So we have a big mixture of in all my ancestors. Uh, I come from a Catholic uh, family. We are nine brothers and sisters, seven girls and two boys, and a very nice childhood and a very I've been I've been very lucky. I had a very nice uh, life. We are Catholics. Uh, but my mother had a very special uh, attitude towards people that they were suffering and people going through bad economic situations. And she had five sisters and they would get together and sew and knit to, to, to make clothes and to give it for people. I have two cousins, priests. So there was, a, there was this way of uh, looking at those that they were suffering and having problems. And mm. I'm very grateful. And then I went to a bilingual school in Buenos Aires, where they had they had this idea of 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 the other people, you know, of of making things to help. So it was quite normal in my in my group of friends and family members to to be a to be awake with the needs of others. Mm. It's an interesting to. That, you know, it starts there in the family, of course, where you have that call before you even know it and you live in it and you walk around in it. Uh, social justice, that is really what you're talking about. How, uh, how prevalent would you say that that is a ministry that's in the Catholic tradition in Argentina? It's quite important. Uh, I would say that 80, 90 percent of Argentinians are Catholic. Uh, before it was it was more common to see people in church, young, uh, young and kids. Now it, it has changed a lot, unfortunately. Uh, but still, the church has a very big role in 
in teaching and helping people uh, with needs. Mm. But we had other problems that uh, with the government and politics that mixed together and things changed, not for good, for wrong. Uh, unfortunately, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's very sad. It's very sad. But still always the church has been uh, very active in, in the way to, to teach us and to to push us all in a good way to go and be with our eyes open for those who need it. Not only uh, material things, spiritual needs. No? Yeah. So it yeah. was very important. So tell her, how did you begin to work in end-of-life care? 20 years ago. Uh, let me see. Uh, by the time I was 40 years old, I had never had uh, someone died very close to me that really broke my heart mm. because of because of death. And it happened uh, by that time, 20 years ago, that my niece, that she was a very healthy girl of, of 17 years old, she called my sister once, telling her that she had a very strong headache and she had a brain hemorrhage mm. 24 hours Afterward, she was she was brain dead, and two days after she died. Mm. Uh, for me as a nurse, even though I always explain, I've been uh, I am a registered nurse, but it happened that I never had the chance to work because life circumstances. And uh, during those two days, I was amazed uh, by the mixture of so much pain, but at the same time there was so much love, so much. All of, all of us, brothers and sisters, stick together with my sister and the husband and their kids. It was a mixture of a lot of pain and a lot of love. It was really surprising. I never thought that this could be like this because I didn't have experience with death, right. mm. with a close death. And it really was in- incredible. I was had a lot of mixed feelings, but well surprised even though. And she died two days afterwards, the day of her 18th birthday. And well, it was, uh, everything was very, very painful and very joyful. It's very strange, the feeling to describe mm. it. Mm. And a year afterwards, I was in a parish. It was one year course to become a, a volunteer in end of life. And I, from then onwards, I kept on doing this. You you wrote in your email to Saul that the, t- the subject of death and dying was taboo. And, and you were part of the group that kind of changed that, uh, or starting the change that. How's it going now? Still is a big, big uh, taboo, death and dying. And uh, now for, for six years, uh, I decided to start teaching and talking about death and dying. Uh, the place where I, I was trained to be a spiritual counselor, they knew that I was working with terminally ill patients. They asked me if I was if I could give a, some type of lecture about it, and I told them, "Okay, give me six months. Let me take all the information I have, learn how to make a, a PowerPoint, <laughs> and I <laughs> and then I will uh, I will do what you ask me." And from then onwards, I kept on teaching. I want to. I don't know if the word is to change, break, uh, destroy this death taboo, but people don't, don't even name the word death. They talk about going, living, parting, but they never say she died or you die. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to, 
to start talking about uh, what would you like to do the moment of your death. And uh, it's amazing uh, the reaction of people when they come and uh, I give this lecture that lasts 45 minutes with beautiful pictures, uh, nothing tragic, but still things that uh, make you think about death and the end of life. And it's amazing the reactions of people because they never thought about it that you can have a lot of pain a lot of love, tenderness, laughter, storytelling, hugging, forgiveness. So suddenly they, they see death and dying from a different angle and the reaction is really amazing. And I'm mm. so happy because this slowly, slowly starting to roll and people are starting to, to, to read, to learn and try to, to understand a little bit more about it. Why do you think, Gloria, that the language of death uh, was avoided instead of saying somebody died and they were going through different ways to to convey that message. Why do you think it was avoided that much within the culture? What I studied in many years is that after Second World War, uh, most people started going to hospitals and dying in hospitals. So instead of being something normal that you could see in your house, your grandma, all the kids and grandchildren around saying goodbye, the friends, the neighbors, Suddenly, everybody starts uh, dying alone in hospitals. So that was the big change, something that was from ever uh, being standing by uh, someone dying. Suddenly, be, uh, people didn't want to, to be around death. The only, the only idea was of something very painful, horrible. Uh, death is the same like physical pain and spiritual pain. And not always is like that. I've seen people die, most of them without pain and without spiritual problems unsolved. So there are many ways of seeing death, not only physical pain and physical and, and, and spiritual suffering. It's not like that. And yeah. People need to know that. Mm. Well, in the, you know, you live there in Argentina. It's a very heavily Catholic area. That your sounds like the church has also avoided talking about it or being any kind of an advocate for those to uh, die a good death. And I mean, here in the United States, I mean, still nobody really likes to talk, use the word death or they died. You know, they pa they pass on, they do all this and the other stuff. And I get really frustrated with that. But I'm I'm, I'm not the one who's going to go out there and yell from the streets that, you know, they died, they died. You know, but I'm just saying. How come it is that you you know you've got such a significant faith and spiritual tradition in your in your your country, and they still have difficulty with this? Is it because the church doesn't like to talk about it? I will tell you a story. It was a funny one. In the parish close to my house, there was a priest that used to work with with teenagers, mm -hmm. and I did special PowerPoint orientated for teenagers about end of life. And I asked uh, ask him if, you, if he could see me. I took my computer. I started passing all the pictures about how it was uh, organized for teenagers about death. And suddenly his body lecture, he just moved his chair one meter behind. <laughs> uh, and when I saw the, the, the way he moved, like a... Like a, a the priests that are afraid of death. Yeah. I have to see it and I have to accept it. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. Uh, if you're not used to go very much perhaps to hospitals or you're not 
if you're afraid of death, uh, I understand that for them is hard. So and they have so many other problems that perhaps, I don't know, uh, for me, it really surprised me. And there are other priests that are fantastic, uh, mm-hmm. the pastoral mm-hmm. care in, in end of life. So you have a, bit of, a little bit of everything. Oh, absolutely. And I know that they, that, like you say, people don't experience it well. And they've not studied it or looked at it or watched it. And I'm still thinking, my mind goes to the point of saying, uh, families know their loved ones are dying, whether they're going to say it or not. And what the what I you know wish I would see, and I hear you trying to teach it, is the idea that it's it's they're going to be okay, and everybody's going to be okay. And you know, and, and our faith tells us that that's very very true. When I when I do counseling in the end of life, when I have the chance to talk to the patients, mm-hmm. I, ask, I ask them if they. If the, if the communication arrives to the point that they want to talk about it, most of them, they want to talk about it. Yep. Uh, I, I normally ask them, what are you afraid? The previous of death, the specific moment of death, or the after death. Hmm. Because that helps me to understand if, um, because if it's before the, the, the time previous, perhaps they're afraid of uh, physical pain. So right. I tell them, well, normally... There are a lot of things to be done to control physical pain. If it's the moment exact of the death, I really believe, and I have a lot of, I had a lot of experience with death, death experiences. So I always tell them, the the moment of, the moment of parting, the moment specific and a few hours perhaps before, someone that loves you very much is going to come and fetch you. It's not alone. This uh, that's at least what I. I believe, I really mm-hmm. believe it, and I've had a lot of ex- situations that th- that proved that that happens. Yep. And if it's afterwards, uh, if you're a Catholic and you have uh, all your problems, uh, you could, you had the chance to say sorry or to be forgiven or forgive or forgive oneself. They had. Uh, they're not due to. You're not due to 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 be afraid of the afterwards. You know that. Mm-hmm. We'll get together at the end of the world and God and blah, 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 all the things we know about our faith. So for me, it was important to ask them of what you're afraid. And that mm. cleared a lot uh, the whole situation. Mm. Uh, there, was a, there was an interesting story in my family. I remember that uh, there was a family that uh, coming from a long trip, they had a car accident the father and two of the four kids died. The mother and two of the other kids were sent to hospital. And this family was friend of one of my brothers and sisters. We used to get every Saturday at my parents' house for lunch, all of us, all the children and all of us married. And everybody was talking about this accident. The moment I arrived, after everybody started talking, I said, I want the word, please have a second. And I told them, please, if this happens to me, be sure that no one is going to uh, bury my beloved family. And everybody was stunned. Mm. I said, but why do you say that? Because in this case, the, the mother and two of the kids were at hospital for a long time. And the rest of the family buried the father and the two, the two kids. I said, please, the only thing I ask you is if it happens to me, be sure uh, that I will. That the moment I will be okay, I will be the one to go and bury 
my beloved ones. And they were shocked because mm. the things that they normally we don't talk. And mm-hmm. when it happens, then it's terrible because you never said what you wanted. Mm. Yeah. And that idea is to uh, knowledge is power in a way, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. You can decide, you can plan, you can solve a lot of problems. But if you don't talk about it, then comes you know, then comes the, the big storm and all the problems and all the family fightings and things. We need to talk about death, end of life, and what things we want or we don't want for the moment that time comes. That's what I really feel. It helps a lot. Mm. It's awesome. amazing, you That's know. Awesome. What motivates you to, to be really passionate about this topic? Because it looks like you're one of a kind there. <laughs> <laughs> My husband tells me that I'm very strange. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I don't know. I I, still, I'm amazed when you you stand uh, close by a family that is suffering a lot uh, with a closure and suddenly you you put like... uh, to give them a lot of ideas and, and things to work out. And suddenly everything changes. If the big storms come to a very quiet sea and so many marvelous things happen that every day I'm, I'm surprised. Every day I'm, I am really well impressed of the nice things that happen even, even in death. And that is something that I'm so happy to be able to to, to tell people and, and people believe me and when they experience that difference uh, they come and they thank me and they say oh that was fantastic uh, uh, I'm so happy that you told us this and you told us that and I don't know it, it's like a, it's like a gift for my even for me it's a gift mm-hmm. to see all that, all that all that change let me ask you this Gloria uh, you go to a social engagement you're walking around you're talking to people then somebody comes up to you and says, so what is it you do for work? What is it that you like to do? And I, <laughs> okay, I got the answer I wanted right there. Yeah, it's the same thing that happens to me. You know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden it's quiet. And the next thing you know, they're somewhere else. They don't want to talk about it. Uh, I don't normally talk about the subject. If, if I'm in a, in a dinner with friends, I normally don't talk about it unless they ask me. Right. And it, it and it did happen to me many times that people asked me about it. And once or twice, my husband kicked me under the table, like, they changed the subject. And a few months ago... <laughs> yeah. so sorry, sorry. That, I, I just got a visual on that, and I can just see the hus- your husband doing that. Bueno, and two or three months ago, uh, a day I sat him and said, listen... This is the last time you told me this. If you're uncomfortable with this, of me telling about it, step out and go. It's not that I'm talking. I want to, to have the conversation. It's not that I want just to show, oh, how nice I am because I work with terminally ill patients. But if someone asks me, eh, allow me to explain. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry. It's your business. It's not mine. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I said yeah. it in a very nice way, but it, it did happen many times that he didn't like it that I would explain about it. And I'm not. It's not that I go to a place. I said, "Oh, here I am. This, this is what I do." Hey, you listen. Not at all. <laughs> so it's it's, <laughs> it's nothing. 
that's interesting. <laughs> so Gloria, you're, you're really, yeah. So you have a chance to work in end of life as a nurse because you're trying to do that. But you've chosen to work there as a spiritual counselor. Tell us why. Uh, I married and I went to live abroad. I lived three years in North Africa, in Tunisia, three mm. in, in Indonesia, in Kalimantan, Borneo, and three in Malaysia, and then three years in the south of Argentina. I've been traveling a lot with my husband's work, and I had two kids abroad and two then two other kids in Argentina. And uh, my husband wanted... Uh, I'm 60, so I'm not a little girl, and by, I was brought up in a way that I was supposed to be a housewife. So... My husband didn't want me to work, and it was very hard to work being a foreigner in other countries. It was not easy. That's why I couldn't work. And it was very painful because I really loved my, my profession. Nowadays, I still think I am a nurse because I can understand a lot of how uh, diseases, how they turn. I know uh, beforehand things that the family will need and they can do so I can advise them. I never had the chance to work as a nurse, to be, to be honest. And then I came to Argentina. I had four kids. I was on, every day in carpools taking and bringing kids from schools. It's not like in the States. Uh, normally, moms, uh, we have to organize differently. And my left just uh, suddenly many years had passed. And I'm not going now to work as a nurse with 50 or 60 years. They're very badly paid, like doctors. Mm. And teach, and it's not a problem of payment. It's a problem that uh, my husband he was not too keen on, on on me working, and I had a lot of work in my house with my kids. And uh, I think that uh, my friend over there uh, realized, in a way, how much suffering I had without being able to to do my work as a nurse. And this was a possibility for me with something that has to do with health people and life and it was a, a wonderful opportunity to learn about it and I thought this could be of good use to others and I think it's for me at least it's, it's wonderful yeah so you love it uh, let's take a little break and then we'll be right back continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. Uh, welcome back. We are talking to Gloria Miggins in Argentina. Uh, Gloria, you wrote a book on, on spiritual care. Could you ex uh, explain that to our listeners uh, Talk to us about your book. Okay. Uh, I'm not a... Uh, writing is not my specialty, but it did happen that each time I finished all this in the parishes, I would finish my lectures about the end of life. Everybody wanted more information. In Argentina, you don't find many, many books about it, even though you can find most of Elizabeth Kubler's Ross books. But people want uh, information uh, about it. So after... Three years of everybody asking for more information. I went and, and uh, I found a teacher. She was a teacher that uh, she was a journalist and also was a writing teacher. And I went and said, listen, I need to make a, 
a little booklet, you know, of two or three pages as to give information for the people if they want to, to know about it and certain ideas about this. And she stared at me and she said, why don't you write a book? And I said, no, <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, I cannot do that. I don't know how to. I don't, I'm not good at writing. I, and she said, I teach you. So for one year and a half, I went once a week to this teacher and she taught me how to. I had a lot of stories I had written to kept that I kept just for me. And she said, bring your stories. I will show you how to, to make the introduction and we'll choose things that will make the book interesting. And I really worked very, very hard for one year and a half. And I published my book, but it was not finished, actually. I always thought it was not finished. And I was invited to Uruguay um, to a congress, a family congress uh, organized by the church and to talk about end of life. For me, it was, wow, that was mm -hmm. amazing. Mm -hmm. to, to talk in a family congress about the end of life was really surprising. And uh, last year, I decided to finish it. So I just went back to my teacher. I wrote more stories. Uh, I put a little bit about uh, grieving. And now I find that my book is, is already finished. It has been published in Spanish and is now working with a translator to see if I be able to, to have it in English. And it happened many, many, very many nice things, you know. Once I was in a bar sitting and having a coffee and someone uh, approached me and said, you are a Gloria Mies? I said, yes. I want to thank you because thanks to your book, uh, I was able to to stand differently in, in my father's death. And those type of things happened that I'm, I'm really surprised. It's, it really, it really is, it's moving to know that perhaps we can give a hand to someone that is afraid to stand by someone is dying. And sometimes I receive mails from people I don't know thanking me. And I don't think it's nothing special. I needed, I thought, well, it's good to have something in Argentina for our people and to to learn once again about how to stand by someone is dying. So hmm. it's been so nice, so nice. It's, I'm really, I'm really impressed. So Gloria, what, what is the title of the book and what else, can you share some of the stories in that yes, book? Yes, but the, perhaps the translation the, in English will be End of Life, Loving Care. I had one experience while I was at the hospice. I remember that there was this woman that she came to the hospice with a two-month-old baby. She had a very, very difficult life story. She was abused by the father in the house. She left her house with 15 years old. She had a very untidy life uh, with a friend. And finally, she finds a nice chap. She falls in love. She, she's pregnant. And the moment she's pregnant, they discover that she has cancer. So the doctor told her, listen, if you are going to go through treatment, it's better you have an abortion because probably also the child will die if you, if you have this treatment. And she said, I'm not going to have the treatment. I want to have this child. And his couple said, do it. And she said, no. So the, the couple left her alone and she arrived to the hospice with a, with a baby of two months old. Imagine. She was so angry with life. She had such a difficult life. And she was a very, very difficult lady. With all the volunteers, we tried to pamper her and help her. And, and she was like a snake. You know, 
was terrible. It was very hard for all of us to, to try to give her love and help her. She told her friend, the female friend, that she wanted to leave her child after her death. And the friend was coming every day to the hospice wanting to take the child. And she said, no, wait till I die and then you take my child. But the friend, she didn't bother. She would come every day and she would wanted to take the, the baby. So after a hospice meeting with all the team, we decided not to open the door to her friend. Mm-hmm. And still we're doing so many things trying to pamper her. And, and uh, suddenly a day she said to uh, one of the members, to the volunteers, that she wanted to leave her child to a family of father and mother. And she was dying. By that time, she was really doing very, very bad. So the, the whole hospice team moved, found a, a, a judge. She had to, to change her will. And the day she changed the will for the future of his son, her pain, if it was from 9 to 10, she had 9 in, in physical pain. Her physical pain dropped to 3 from one to 10 to three. She had a big change of personality. She became suddenly a very lovely lady. She was very nice. She told us that she had never been so happy that the time while she was in the hospice and she died peacefully. Hmm. It was amazing, amazing the change hmm. in her. It was really very nice. So most of our pain involved who is going to take care of my son when I die. And when yes. that problem was solved, it really took away a lot of the pain. That's that's powerful, powerful story. Then there was another lady. She was very old. And in a Christmas night, when she was young, they were having in her balcony, she had a very big balcony. They were having the, the, the Christmas dinner. And suddenly the son of 15 died. It was a, is a someone, there was a bullet. Someone mm-hmm. just shot. Uh, they don't know what was a lost, I don't know what they call like a lost uh, bullet. And the son just dropped dead in the middle of the dinner. And she arrived to the hospice being very, very, very old. And she would tell me, I cannot forgive the, the person that killed my son because they could never found who was the one to kill. And the, the son was just was by, by chance hit by the bullet. And she arrived to the hospice and the only thing she said, I cannot forgive, I cannot forgive. And she was very sad. And with this um, compassionate listening, letting her empty her heart, I arrived a day and she said, you know something? I forgive the person who just uh, pulled the trigger and killed my son. And she had a big smile. A few hours later, she died in peace. Mm. It was really amazing, you know? Yeah. I, I am... I am. I find your story to be incredibly meaningful and, uh, of course, emotional. Um, you've done some awesome work there, Gloria. My goal is to, to teach people uh, not to feel afraid of standing by as someone is, is uh, finishing their life. If I, if I can do that with my book or with my lectures, I think I will die very happily. It's like I... That was my goal, or at least at, at my age and this time of my life, that's what I'm looking forward, hmm. is to help others to, to, to help others. That's the idea. Hmm. Uh, many times, uh, 
I have a, uh, someone I know that the mother is 93 and she was very scared of dying. And she didn't want to see or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And the daughter was very worried. And I, I asked her, listen, she asked me if I could do something. So I, I asked her, but well, she told me that the mother didn't want psychologist or psychiatrist to talk about her, her future death. I asked her, does your mother have any pain? And she said, of course, being 93, of course, she, there's always a pain here or a pain there. I said, okay, tell them that I will go to her house to work in her hand and feet with a reflexology massage. And I started going and uh, listening and asking about her life, what made her happy, what, what was her life experience. And after a few weeks, uh, that we had a nice relationship and she was, she was trusting me. Uh, slowly, slowly, we started talking about death and dying. Uh, so many times, uh, uh, reflexology is it's like an opening door for people that are afraid to talk about uh, end of life. You come, you give a nice massage, you have this chance to know each other and and talk about life, and it is like good, a good opening door for this type of conversation. <laughs> you know, these stories you've been talking about, and it just seems to me that it comes really to my awakening here is that a lot of this pain that our our patients suffer with, uh, we usually think of it as being, uh, you know, pain from the disease. Uh, you know, like nerve endings on fire. Hearing you talk, it, it gives me a whole different perspective of how you you have told the stories of how you got rid of pain through your presence, through your touch, uh, through your willingness to listen. And when you've got someone who's talking a nine and goes down to a three, uh, that's an incredible without, you know, sure they might have had pain medication. You also that you know a lot of our internal pain is not just you know that physical pain, but it's that uh, emotional and uh, spiritual and spiritual pain exactly. And, and you you're addressing this without you. I don't even know if you know you're doing it or not. That's just what I'm thinking. No, I I know I know I know it it it, it has a lot to do with this uh, spiritual spiritual pain. Uh, two years ago. Uh, I go to a private hospital to take the Holy Communion and th there was a, a young boy of 40 he was uh, dying of HIV and he was very, very angry. Uh, he, he wanted to receive the Holy Communion but he, was, he would hardly talk. You could see the pain in his face and yeah. the pain in the, his body. Very, very thin. Uh, and uh, the sister was all the time with him, so uh, there was no chance that I could have a, a very close talk, heart-to-heart -heart talk. Mm -hmm. So I invited the sister to have a coffee. I offered her, if by the time I was taking the Holy Communion after that, if she, I would offer her if she wanted to go for a walk and rest for a while while I stay with his brother. And she said yes. And after... Oh, Many, many, uh, many visits. Uh, one day he opened his heart and he told me that, uh, that he knew that he was dying. So the first thing I asked him is, are you afraid of dying? And he said, no, no, I'm not afraid. 
So next question was uh, how your your family business, you're, you're doing okay with everyone, with your father, mother, brothers, sisters. Do you have something to, to, to mend or something to forgive? He said, no, no. With those things, everything is okay. But I cannot forgive myself. It was the first time it happened to me. What do you mean that you cannot forgive yourself? And he said, because of the way I've lived, now I'm, now I'm dying. And I was responsible for, for my illness and for the, the, the thing that I'm dying now. So he couldn't forgive himself. Wow, I thought it was extremely hard, no? So I tried to explain him to for him, forgive himself, that uh, things happen sometimes. Perhaps you don't take very well care, but you think that you are young, they have good health, etc., etc. I never knew if he could be able, if he was able to forgive himself, to be honest. I don't know. Only once he opened his heart with me. I remember one, uh, one weekend the sister was not going to, to come because she had to, to, to manage some family business. And I told her, don't worry, I will go in to visit your brother. But he was a, a, a boy, a man that uh, didn't want to talk. He was just inside of himself in his own pain. So I thought, what can I do in my visit? So I thought, well, perhaps I will take something to read. So I arrived to, the, to this place. Uh, how are you? I'm okay. Uh, but he was, I was sitting uh, close to the window and he was giving me his back. He was looking at the door. So I'd ask him, do you want me to, I read, I read you something. Okay, he said. So I started reading. It was like short stories. After a few minutes, he turned, he looked like up to the ceiling in the bed. And after a while, he turned to, to look at me. And I could see the, all, all this body, um, body language, you know, how, right. how uh, the, the reading uh, got caught him uh, and he, uh, his face changed, his body changed. No? It happened for me uh, two days that, and the third day he said, I don't want any reading today. Hmm. It's amazing. You know, uh, there's so many things we can do, small things, simple things that perhaps you can touch a heart and you can stand by the person that is, is, is suffering with hmm. little and it, it's interesting how you you approach this, at least from my vantage point again, is that, you know, you might have a tried and true approach on a certain, per, you know, to, to each of the people. And all of a sudden you get someone who doesn't even respond to you. You've got to really, you know, be on your feet, willing to make changes and adjust. And I, it sense, I sense that you do this fairly well. Someone called me and said, I have my friend, uh, she's dying. Uh, the family are Catholics, but they, they don't practice religion. And the daughter is 40, and in two months she had a liver cancer, and she's dying. And this, the whole story of this woman, it was fantastic. She was a very nice uh, lawyer. She had um, created two um, dining rooms for, for very poor people that had no, no food. She even uh, organized a little more chapel close to her house. And suddenly she was dying of this liver cancer. And the friend called me and said, do you think you can go and just to see if you can help her a little bit with, 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 her, with her closure? I said, okay, no problem. So we, arrived, we, we checked to, to meet the next day 
and this hospital. And I asked her the, to the friend, do you think she would like to receive the Holy Communion? And she said, uh, yes, she would love to, because she was really, she loved to uh, receive the Holy Communion. So I arrived the next day to the hospital and uh, the friend told me that she was already in a coma. And I asked her, do you want me? I go and see the parents and, stand and see if I can help a little bit with them. It was amazing because the moment I, uh, we opened the door of the bedroom where she was there, she was dying, the first impression was like a, like a wave of pain, something that, wow, that hit me. Uh, you could touch the pain. It was amazing, mm -hmm. the, the, the feeling. Mm -hmm. uh, one father, the father sitting one side, the mother in the other one, the friend told me, this is Gloria, she's coming here, she, wants, she wanted to come and visit your daughter that, uh, well, the father hugged me. He needed just, you know, a big hug. And the mother just stared at me with a bit, you know, she was suspicious. And uh, I say hello to the mother. And I don't, don't ask me. I sat in the floor. There was no chair, so I sat in the floor. And I got the, the mother. The mother was holding the daughter's hand, so I did a, like a sandwich with both hands. And I sat, sat over there just breathing, and the mother would stare at me and say, ha, that's the way God pays her for all her, her work with the poor and the, and the people she, she helped. What could I tell her? She was a grieving mother. She was in a way like right. crying and then where was God in that time? Hmm. I offered them if they wanted to have a prayer all together. They said yes. The moment she started praying, a nurse came starting to to measure her blood pressure and, uh, and all the parameters that she needed. Everything was interrupted. And suddenly something closed my, my mouth. I couldn't talk. Something like, there was, I couldn't talk. So I asked the mother, don't you mind if I put the, I don't know the name of the box. We call it in Spanish, teca. It's, the, it's a little box where you take the Holy Communion. And ask her, don't ask me why, can I put the little box close to her chest? And I said, yes, do whatever you want. So I sat down and suddenly <laughs> I started to get angry with God hmm. because it was so much pain, so much pain. And I was like fighting, you know, with why God, why, why you allow this? It's not fair, poor woman, poor father, poor mother. And I started to get angry mm -hmm. and angry and angry inside myself. I said, what's wrong with me? But how is it possible, God, that you do this? And... And after a while, I realized that there was nothing else for me to do. So I stood up, I said goodbye, I hugged the mother. Uh, the daughter's hand was very cold, was one of the beginning of the body's signs that she was closing. Then I went to the father, said goodbye. I caressed her, her front was very cold. And the moment I got the box, the box was burning, burning. It's like if my friend from, <laughs> from heaven took me from, the, from my shirt and just did like this. Like say, what I felt is like, even if you don't understand, even mm. if you don't believe, I am here. Mm. There was no explanation. The, the heat, the heat of the, of the box, there was no... It was, for me, it, it burned in my hands. Mm. So when uh, I left, 
And for one week, I could stop crying. It was like, <laughs> it was like the, the proof that even though we don't understand and we don't believe or, or we doubt or we fight with our friend on top of us, I mm. learned God is there. Man, that, God is there. Gloria, that I mean, is powerful. I and mean, you got to see God right there. Yeah, and it's a testament <laughs> of, of what you do. You embody uh, the pain of the people you're ministering to. And that, you know, in, in your prayer, in fact, you were praying their frustration and God heard you and God responded. No, he just spoke me. <laughs> <laughs> However you want to look at it, exactly <laughs> what happened. I, you it was know. a gift, to be honest, but mm. it was amazing. So uh, sometimes you don't know what to do. You just only sit there and hold hands. And You see, this, this whole thing that we do with our, our chaplaincy, it's a whole lot different than you know, both Saul and I have served churches and it's a whole different ball game when you're talking about, you know, meeting folks in your church, you're there, see them on Sundays or whenever you worship and you don't get the depth, you don't get the intimacy, you don't get the, the, uh, the, the situations like you were just giving us examples of, you don't get that in the church. And that's why, you know, when you start talking about your parishioners by that friends, you know, in the church, and they're dying, you know, you know, quite frankly, you know, you're the one who's going to have to really give them the, 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 the spiritual care that is really needed. I mean, you know, the church, the priest can come in and, and anoint and do all the good things and, and, uh, but you're the one who's there. You're the one that God has asked to be there and you're doing it with a great deal of grace and passion and love. And, you know, that's, that's what hospice chaplaincy is all about. They are gifts. I think that God gives everyone different gifts. Exactly. But perhaps mine is very strange, to be honest, at least from my husband's <laughs> point of view. <laughs> so not, <laughs> not from my point of view, it isn't, but your husband, I understand. <laughs> so, He's Gloria. An engineer. He's an engineer. He's very square. He's very nice. But in such ways, for certain things, it's strange. He's a lovely guy. He is. So, <laughs> Gloria, uh, what are the challenges for hospice chaplains in Argentina? Uh, we need more hospice chaplains, to be sure. St uh, luckily, uh, the lot of now are starting to be. We're having more hospices, so uh, people are starting to learn about it. Uh, but still, we need much more, and, and we need to have more palliative care in hospitals. We have very sometimes we have very good hospitals, and there there is not a palliative care team. Mm. We need. Uh, more training and more people working uh, in palliative care. Now with the COVID, uh, the government called a lot of palliative care uh, doctors uh, and asked them to, to help and, and to see how they can manage the problem with uh, people dying from COVID. So things are moving. The school where I was, where I've learned to be a spiritual counselor uh, got together with the uh, rabbi, uh, rabbi community and with uh, uh, evangelical uh, groups and they went to the government and, of and offered them help free uh, for what we call for compassionate listening. So still there's a lot much more to do uh, because they don't know, they don't, most of the people in the government doesn't know about what is the compassionate listening and uh, we're trying to 
to teach and to talk to the uh, to the to, uh, hospital doctors and offering our our job free by phone slowly slowly it's moving now we have a very big increase in, in people with a, that are contagious and people in hospital so we'll see what will happen this these few months that we're going through the worst, uh, I, I know if it, it's the worst moment now, but perhaps this is, will start moving with, for all the people that are working in this. We'll see. Mm. So Gloria, you're one of our students at Hospice Chaplaincy. Uh, you know our material. How can we help you and the people there using the material that we have? Uh, <laughs> Perhaps my, my biggest uh, wish would be if you could have this, this training in Spanish uh, and, offer it, and, and offer it in Argentina uh, for the people to be trained. I think it will be wonderful. I've, I myself am learning a lot of things and I'm very, very happy because uh, it's material to give to others. I really only have words to thank you and tell you keep on because your job is fantastic and and we have a lot to learn from you, from all of you. So uh, just thank you and lots of thank you. Thank you. Uh, all right. God bless you, Gloria. Uh, you too. And well, I see you soon. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Big hugs. Uh, blessings. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye now. Yeah. That was Gloria Megans uh, from Argentina. Thank you for listening. Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.